All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Hey, hey, it's Kiss. This is Ergo. As you may have noticed, we've been putting out a bunch of bonus episodes in a row, conversations that we're facilitating in other organizations, some other content, stuff that we thought y'all might like. We're deep in the midst of production on Help This Garden Grow, which is our first audio docu-series, so that's taken up a lot of our time. You'll hear some, you know, typical Ergo episodes coming soon. Um, But for today, another bonus ep. Um, This is Damon facilitating a conversation as part of the Chicago Transformation Collab. This was a weekend-long event that happened a few weeks back here in Chicago. It was put on by Zealous, a national advocacy and education initiative working to topple the historic imbalance of power over criminal justice media and policy. They put together an amazing weekend, which included this talk between Damon, Incha Roman of the Vera Institute of Justice, Sam Sinyangwe of Mapping Police Violence, Sharon Mitchell from the Cook County Public Defender's Office, and Lacey Wright, who is the executive director of Hillman Grad, the branch of Lena Waits production company that works to improve the quality of criminal justice popular culture. As always, you can subscribe to Ergo wherever you get your pods, rate, review, comment, all that good stuff, and we'll be back with some more episodes coming soon. All right, let's get into it with this conversation from the Chicago Transformation Collab. All right, so this first panel is what we call a view from across across the country, what we are up against. And I'm going to invite our moderator of this panel up here right now. This is Damon Williams from Ergo Radio. Can I get Damon up here? I appreciate you, brother. All right, and he's going to introduce our panelists today. Again, let, come on, let's give him some human energy. I know it's early. Come on. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? How y'all feeling? I am Damon. I'm from Ergo Radio. We also are recording this panel and this conversation. So for folks who are missing it, be able to hear it later at home. But with no further ado, let's get to our amazing panelists. First, we have Insha Rahman, the Vice President of Advocacy and Partnerships from the Vera Institute of Justice. Make some noise. Next, we have Sam Sinyangwe, the founder of Mapping Police Violence and the Police Scorecard. Some noise for Sam. We have Sharon Mitchell from our Public Defender's Office. Make some noise for Sharon. And we have the Executive Director of Hillman Grad Foundation. Make some noise for Macy Wright. So... The the name of this conversation is what we're up against. And so we want to talk a little bit about messaging, about the discourse, about the dialogue that is confined and that we're trying to make space to make more possible to go further. So I want to start off first by engaging the, the, the ideal space. I think oftentimes when we're in discussion, whether it's in you know, sometimes in spaces like this, but definitely when we're in our institutional spaces or talking to corporate media, there are limitations 
whether it's, you know, our capacity to organize the things that we want to talk about, the time and resources available, bad faith actors, how we believe we'll be received, and having to, you know, maneuver established power structures. Sometimes we can't go all the way there. So in all of your work, and I'm going to start with you, Sam, for mapping police violence, if we can go all the way there, if we make room and make space for freedom for our ideals about the work that we're doing, where would you like to take the discourse, particularly from your space of mapping police violence that you might not be able to say everywhere or all the time? So it's a great question. Um, and let me, before I answer the question, let me back up a little bit because I feel like we need to reflect on how we got here, right? So I got into this work in 2014 after August 9th when Mike Brown was murdered by Ferguson PD. Mass protests and in those early days and weeks and months of the protests, as the, the nation began to focus on this issue of police violence and racial injustice, there were a whole lot of questions about data that were really about lives, about communities, but that data could help answer. Uh, so I'm a data scientist. And before 2014, my work was focused on school to prison pipeline issues. So the U.S. Department of Education, since the Obama administration, under the Office of Civil Rights Data Collection, has been collecting data on virtually every school in America. So you can go to their portal online. You can look up your kid's school, any school, elementary, middle, high school. You can see the demographics of the school. You can see the demographics of who's being suspended from school, in school or out of school. You can see who's being referred to law enforcement, who's being arrested at school. You can see who's being... Uh, put in, in gifted and talented programs and who is not, who's been put in advanced coursework, who's not, all of that for almost every school in America. And then in 2014, as the nation became focused on police violence, even basic questions couldn't be answered. Questions about how many people were the police killing each year. The federal government couldn't tell you how many people the police were killing each year. They could tell you how much rainfall there was in rural Oklahoma going back 100 years. They couldn't tell you how many people the police killed last year or the year before. And that's true even today. They still don't have a comprehensive database on this subject. So my work very much was motivated by having the experience of, of using data in the school-to-prison pipeline space as a tool to push for change and seeing the power of data to convince particularly people in positions of power, policymakers, researchers, who had been accustomed to dismissing our lives and our stories. And then it became clear that we needed to have the capacity to do that in the policing space. We needed to have the capacity to collect the data the federal government wasn't collecting and use that data to tell a story about what was happening in a quantitative way, to talk about patterns, to talk about systems, to talk about the fact that these weren't isolated incidents. This was part of a pattern and a trend of police killing Black people all across our country. So I think the narrative in, in many ways has shifted in a couple of different ways over the, over the past eight or so years since then. In the beginning, so much of the work seemed to be motivated by the need to convince this nation that there was a problem, that that problem was systemic, that it wasn't a problem of a quote-unquote bad apple officer or a single officer who did a, a single act in a single community. It was, and it was a problem that even if you removed that officer, that system would still be in place. Even if you held the individual officer accountable in each of these cases, the overall system would remain intact because there was a pattern and practice of racism and police violence all across our country. And data was a tool to help un 
uncover that pattern and how deep it went. Now, fast forward to where we are today. I think in large part, the people who could be convinced that there was a systemic problem are now convinced that there's a systemic problem. I don't think that there are people who need some additional piece of evidence at this point after all that we've seen over the past eight years to put them over the edge to understand this. I think the challenge now is, is, a, is different, right? The narrative challenge is different. And that narrative challenge is how, given all that we know about the problem, given what we know about how systemic it is and how deep it is, how do we convince people of how transformative the change needs to be to uproot this system? That it can't just be reforms along the, ed- along the margins, that it can't just be, you know, we're fixing this aspect but the overall system remains intact, remains as funded as it's been, or even more so, that can't be our approach because ultimately the data points to the need to fundamentally transform the system, to take away the power and the resources that the system has used to cause violence against our communities and to invest those in solutions that actually work. Which leads me to the answer to your question, which is what I would love to be doing and what I think would be amazing to focus on in an ideal world is what are the best solutions that don't involve the police? How are we using data to track and measure the the efficacy of those solutions because they ought to be serving our communities equitably, right? It can't just be that we assume that if it's an alternative to the police, that it's going to be equitable because we know these systems aren't unique to policing. We know that these inequities pervade a variety, really every aspect of our society. So how are we using data to build a new system that we can hold accountable, that we can ensure is actually meeting our needs, and that is not causing violence against us and being counterproductive like the current system is being. I think that's what that would be an incredible conversation. I'm interested in having that conversation. But to get there, there's a whole bunch of people that we need to convince that this is even the right approach to start with. And that puts us in this whole conversation about crime and this and that and the other that, that I expect. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to get people uh, away from some of those narratives that they may have heard. Make some noise. That, that, that really, that truly resonates, you know, as participating and helping to build abolitionist movements, that, that trajectory you name rings true of we, we have named the problem, we have quantified the problem, we have qualitated the problem, the, you know, the, the problem is there. And what we need to always remember is that, you know, if we're talking about a revolutionary approach. If we talk about abolition, that is a creative project. Whereas Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, there's about presence, not absence. So how can we take now this approach that we've built in resistance towards creating the type of local and global institutions we need to protect people in the human need? So, so that really resonates. Inshallah, I'm coming to you. I think we will pass that mic. And so in, in working with Vera and you know, from what I understand, it's an organizational mission to incriminalization in all its forms and car- carceral structures in all of its forms. First of all, shout out to that. <laughs> so one, congratulations on, on being on the freedom side. Um, but, you know, there, there's so much nitty gritty work. You guys are so multi-focused that I, I can imagine that just getting to the details of what it takes to, to build all of this programmatic infrastructure can get us away from talking about the big thing sometimes. So I just want to give you a little bit of space in, in your ideal you know, reality, and we're not limited by our capacities or by our opposition or by the, you know, the mainstream infrastructure. What is the conversation or the discourse you think we should be having or could be given more space to? 
ideally, we'd be setting the terms of what safety looks like, what makes our community safe, what makes our community strong. At the end of the day, I think what we all know is with the folks who perhaps can be moved to be convinced that we have real problems in this country and they are systemic and it's going to take transformation, not just reform, to change them, they're not willing to go there with us unless safety is paramount, safety is delivered, and they feel like, I can see transformation, I can see safety in it. And right now, that's the narrative that we don't have, but it's a narrative that I truly believe we can build. And the reason I focus on safety is, so I, along with many, many other people, were part of um, pushing through what we thought was a pretty transformational change to the law in 2019 in New York on bail reform. And there was a ton of popular support among New Yorkers for bail reform when the legislation passed. Close to 60% of New Yorkers, this is across the state, and mind you, yes, New York City is strongly Democratic, but you go upstate, even just a little bit upstate, and you are looking at rural, mostly red counties across upstate New York. But we got to worry people, about them Democrats anyway. No, exactly. So, But most people across New York State said, I don't believe money and wealth to determine your freedom. They agreed with that. And then as bail reform went into effect in January 2020, we saw literally within a matter of weeks, popular support for bail reform plummeted to 32%. We lost over half the folks who had said, I support this reform. We lost them. And why? Because every single day in the headlines, we saw these false, crazy claims that bail reform is undermining safety, that this person, this thing happened because of bail reform, bad weather, bail reform, literally everything. And it just felt like, where is the narrative? We were winning. We were winning. And then we lost so hard. And many of you know, like literally within four months of the law going into effect, the state legislature, many legislators who had pushed hard for bail reform voted to roll some of it back. And that rollback had serious, serious consequences for people's freedom. When the law first went into effect, the jail population in New York State dropped by 43%, literally close to overnight. That's remarkable. It's remarkable. And then now where we are with the first set of rollbacks that happened in 2020, another smaller set of rollbacks that just happened earlier this year because the barrage against bail reform has been relentless, we're now down to sort of about 30 32% fewer people in jail, that's still significant, but that's not nearly transformative enough. And so my lesson there is if we hold the narrative on safety, we define what safety looks like. We don't let the opposition take over and define safety for us. That's that's how we win. And so I'll say more about this in, in a few minutes, but we've been doing a lot of public opinion research, message testing, polling, not because we want our narrative to basically go to the bottom line of what are people ready to hear, but to understand what they're hearing, what they're thinking, and how do we move them to where we need to move them. So for me, the conversation about safety is first and foremost, and then I think we can have the conversations about freedom, about justice, about due process, about everything else that we we want. But safety comes first. Mm, thank you for that. That that also resonates, and, and what I hear also is like a not just a truth telling in our narrative about what safety looks like, but a truth telling in like the tactics that are against us, right? Like we, we see now, and I'm sure many of us are experienced of just like how effective and how corrosive, you know, popular propaganda is. Um, and, you know, I'm, we got Sam here, the data scientist. And it's just, it's so interesting how they don't even need 
data. They don't need to be grounded in the claims that they make. You know, statistically, there's not even been enough time to substantiate the outcomes of the claims that they're that they're connected. It reminds me of, you know, in the first few months of, after the uprising in, in, in Ferguson in 2014, when the FBI started saying there's now a Ferguson effect and now police officers won't do their job effectively when as we, one, they don't even have data on, on police effectively across the country. But the fact within a few weeks, you can turn this over or a policy has changed. It hasn't even gone into effect yet. And there's all of this fear mongering that our people are really susceptible to. I think that's the part that is what we have to wrestle with is like how much of our folks can receive and sponge in some of these really corrosive narratives. All right, I'm gonna, we're gonna come back. Sharon, this is a, I think a perfect toss. You should, should make some noise for Sharon Mitchell. One, I'm just happy to see you like fly. I'm just happy to see you comfortable. I, I, I checked in with Sharon. All right, I'm about to ask you these public defender questions. He's like, nah, man, it's bigger than the public defender's offices. So he got his, he took the tie off, got his sneakers on, and I'm happy that we're here. So Sharon, in, in hearing that, and I'm sure that resonates from your office in the ways in which, you know, narrative shifts and the ways in which, you know, uh, these policy rollbacks come as quick as we even think we can take a breath from getting a win. Um, so, so you're looking at the policy landscape, but you also have the perspective of being, you know, if we want to call it the ground, being in the belly of the beast, you're in the courtrooms, you're, you're standing in front of these judges. Um, when you think of the ideal discourse we need to be having when it's whether around uh, availability of defense resources or what decriminalization, decarceration needs to look like in our state specifically, but that is also in conversation with the national landscape. Um, what are you seeing? What would you like people to have more time and more space to discuss and talk about? Yeah, first I want to acknowledge uh, there are um, a number of uh, folks that describe themselves as public defenders in the audience, and uh, I want to thank them for taking time um, out of their schedules, their days, their families to come in and deal with us. I think too often the public defender's office has seen itself as its full job being shoulder to shoulder with somebody in court and then after court, you know, jobs over. I'm going back home. And I think what a number of people in our office are trying to build is an office that can not only do that as effectively as possible, but also be in spaces like this to repair the harm that our office has created, but also work to build a better community, work to build a better system. So thank you for having us here. Um, and we hope to build with you on that piece. Um, I think that, you know, where do we want to be narrative-wise? Narrative For me, it is um, how horrible the system truly is, right? Uh, we are unfortunately in this situation where um, whether you're a reformer or abolitionist, you are forced to defend the status quo, even though it's a status quo that you did not create. Right? We see this every day on the news where something happens. Somebody uh, is accused of an of a offense, and then they look at us right, as the people who need to answer for the reality that they created. Um, we, we, aren't, we didn't build a system that gives $5 billion to law enforcement regionally. Right? We didn't build a system that seeks to use bars and prosecutors as the fixes to solutions that grocery stores and rec centers are trying to shit solve. So um, our 
battle really is to get off the back foot, right? Um, it's kind of a soccer term. Like, we don't need to be defending. We need to be on offense, and we need to be exposing how the current system, which we did not build, creates so much harm in our society. And we could talk a little bit about the fight around um, any money bond and things of that nature. I hate the word bail reform because the other side has taken it and they've demonized it. And it doesn't even mean anything anymore. If you ask somebody what bail reform is, if you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different answers. So I think, you know, we here in Illinois, folks are here in Illinois, can speak very specifically about the things we, we, are, we are trying to do, and the things we're trying to defend. And also I'd love for us to talk about power. Right. Because how do we get to a place where there are consequences for our leaders for kind of like leaning into the lies? Right. Um, you know, we have some folks here that I would love to talk about that say some real spicy things that they need to pay for politically. Uh, but, um, you know, let, let, let's, let's I'm really excited for this conversation. That's it. And let's make some noise for the as we acknowledge for the, you know, the amazing fight to end cash bail here in Illinois. Like, we need to continue to celebrate that legacy. Um, shout out to Chicago Community Bond Fund. Shout out to everybody a part of the work of making the, the Pretrial uh, Fairness Act a reality. Um, and I also want to honor the legacy of Malika Leem, an, a, an amazing organizer, artist, media maker, who was instrumental in making that happen. Um, Lacey, I want to I come to you, right? Because... We want to also bring in popular culture into the space and how whether, you know, fictionalized or biographical information can be a part of creating this new discourse. Um, you know, you've heard so much about like this work that's going on, whether, you know, it's in courtrooms or in the data sphere. Uh, but, but Hillman Grad is, is working in the, you know, the, the, the Hollywood space. And we know that propaganda the, 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 the ideas of carcerality, of neoliberalism, even sometimes unintentionally are just permeate our media that we consume from basically the time we, before we learn how to speak. Um, so kind of, you know, with that context and with the work that Hillman Grad is, is trying to do, how do you see um, new openings for pop culture or, you know, produced work to make more room for our ideal discourse conversations that we need to be having? I mean, at base, we're in a creative community. So we're known and we're paid for our imagination. And so what has always boggled my mind is that it's sometimes easier for us to imagine dragons or for little kids to imagine that if they run into a wall at platform nine and three quarters, they'll make it to Hogwarts than to believe there's a new version of public peace out there. We see that in all the kind of content we make from the realistic, the documentary, the gritty, to even the fantastical and the fun and the comedy. You know, so I've been a cultural strategist for a few years. And at the height of 2020, right after the death and murder of George Floyd, I had studio heads, like major execs come out to me and be like, we don't know what to do. Who should we donate to? What book should I make all the employees read? And I was like, you're in charge of how many TV shows and you don't know what to do? And, you know, there's a really great study that came out a few years ago with Color Change in UCLA. And they talked about the crime shows that Look, a lot of us have watched. I grew up on Criminal Minds. If anything happens to me, I want the fictional FBI, BAU to come save me because that's what we're taught. But if you look at those shows, I think about three years ago, 81% of them had white male showrunners. Less than 10% had any black writer. 
actually I think 20 out of the 26 shows didn't have any black writers. And I have friends who've worked on these shows. They're specifically told that bad guys cannot be people of color. So we're even portraying a system that's supposed to be reality without showing the people who it actually affects. And, you know, there's a mix of that. And so like in my dream of what I would want to do, what we do at Hellman Grad and many of things is expanding pipeline programs for writers of color, writers who come from marginalized backgrounds, writers who have been system impacted, actors, execs, directors. So we can be the ones telling our stories because so often what's making an impact on how we see crime and how we see violence is being dictated by people who are not system impacted. So how do we get our folks into that pipeline? But also for me is to have, you know, community in that space. You know, one of my best friends was a writer on a crime procedural that may take place in the city. And he called me and was like, I made such a mistake. And I didn't even know it because that was my first job ever as a writer. And all I was trying to do was not get fired and just write a really, really good scene. You know what makes a really good scene? Violence. So he's like, I didn't even know what I was doing. And do you know who advises on those sets? It's the cops. Oftentimes they're extras. NYPD has a film and TV unit. When you see that cop car pull up on a New York show, we have paid for that licensing. We pay NYPD for that shield. Every permit in LA has to go through LAPD. Same with New York. I think Chicago as well. So how also then can the other way, can we get community in the room? How can we get your voices in these rooms? That's why we built out systems to help get more culturally competent anti-racist folks in these rooms so that the stories we are telling are not based on lies anymore. And so I think that's the vision for us, for us to now bring in a different kind of imagination to the creative space. Man, man, they find a way to cut it. They're like the mob. They find a way to get a penny out of everything. Thank you for that, for that information. Like it's, damn, you know, like I knew I couldn't watch Law and Order, but shit, that's just. <laughs> I'm ruining everyone's favorite TV shows yeah, today. Man. I'm sorry. We got we to gotta defund cable. Um, <laughs> Isha, I'm going to come back to you. Um, so for everybody, kind of, we talked about the, the ideal or the things we would like to have more room to enter in the discourse. Uh, but let's come back to, to our reality a little bit. Um, and, and I want to talk about the, the struggles and the challenges. So what are the messages that are beginning to be articulated, that, we're, that are, are being pushed, that are being formulated, that you recognize? And I don't even want to focus on our opposition or the bad fake actors that intentionally, you know, muddy the waters or, or you know, obfuscate what we're talking about. For those who are let's call them passive, let's call them neutral, or even interested. What are the messages that folks are struggling or challenging to receive that we might need to make more space to work through, or, or even if there's healing that's needed um, to open up consciousness to receive some of our messaging? So I mentioned um, earlier that we've been doing a bunch of public opinion research and been gathering the research that other organizations across our field are doing as well. And who we've been specifically doing research on is what we call the movable middle. And so it's folks who, you know, early on in the survey say, yes, I came out for a protest back in 2020. Yes, I feel empathy for, you know, uh, the, the pain and suffering that happens in our system. Yes, I could be supportive of reform. But then you ask them about specific measures and they say, nope, that will harm public safety. Nope, not interested in less money to the police. Yes, I think the police keep us safe. And it's sort of a lack of imagination when it comes to concrete policy solutions. And it's because at the end of the day, we haven't actually set out a vision that they see, feel, believe in that can move us to those specific policy changes that we all want to see in the world. And what's been fascinating about this is you can take those same folks 
And, you know, you ask them sort of, what do you think delivers safety? And a lot of them will point to, well, the presence of police sometimes makes me feel safe. There's lots of people who say it doesn't make me feel safe, but there's a lot of people, including in black and brown communities across socioeconomic class who say, I think there is a role for the police. And we have to know that not again, to sort of stay there in that place, but to know what narratives we need to push and educate people on to get them to see beyond their narrow idea of what delivers safety. And what's been really amazing about this is like, we've been doing some polling around, like what language resonates and this language around strong communities. And then you break down what makes up strong communities. And it's things like clean, green spaces. It's housing with dignity. It is access to good food, health care, good schools. It's all the things we know. We talk about all the time. And it actually resonates really well for that movable middle who at the beginning of the survey 15 minutes ago said, well, police and more prosecutors and more punishment. So we can move people. And I think that that is a really important lesson for all of us. We just have to be really strategic and thoughtful about how we move them and what messages move them and the right ways in which you sort of strategize together. People have to own it and feel it in order to actually, at the ballot box, you know, in community spaces to actually change their frame. But I think it is wholly possible. And this idea of strong communities and owning that language and getting it out into all the spaces that we can, creative spaces, the news, community spaces. And if we speak with a level of what folks in the business call message discipline, we're all saying the same thing in a number of different spaces. That's how I think we get there. And I think we have to do it really surgically in the short term and then think about building for the long term as well. And so in the New York bail fight, which Sharon, you're totally right, bail reform has just been hijacked. It's ugly, like calling it pretrial justice, call it any number of other things, freedom, figure out what to call it, not bail reform. I completely agree. But, you know, what we're doing in the very short term right now is it's a big election year in New York. It's a big election year everywhere. We have legislators who have kept sticking their necks out and they're in marginal districts where they could very well be either challenged by a more conservative Democrat or by a Republican and lose their seat. And so we're doing really strategic surgical ads messaging campaigns in those districts. That's just the short term. That can't be our long-term strategy. That's not a long-term strategy. That's an electoral one. The long-term strategy is exactly what everybody here has talked about is how do we actually in all the spaces that influence how we think that limit or expand our creative imaginations, how do we get these messages around strong communities and what delivers them in those spaces as well? Hmm. Make some noise for that. I, that that really resonates, and especially what you opened up with. I, I just think about, you know, in you saying like, you know, we got to be really honest. Of a lot of folks still believe that we need these systems, and it's just so clear the way in which capitalism, racial capitalism, intersects with carceral logic to the point where folks one don't imagine themselves not being dominated by a work life that takes away all of their like internal and material resources. Uh, so they don't have the time to invest because what what I think, what I hear and what and what I also implore is that we have to move past this liberal notion of all we're pushing folks to do is to name our discontent, name how harmful the system is, and expect, wait, demand someone else to do something for us. That we're actually not. 
pushing folks to just ask for more. We are pushing folks to do more and to take up more responsibility and to actually see themselves as a solution. But, you know, capital and state power kind of disempower folks where they don't even imagine that, oh, I'm a part of what we need to create this safety. We need someone else, a gun, a, a legislator. I can't do it because I don't have the I have not been conditioned. I've not been prepared. I can't even imagine myself as a part of the solution. So I think that that's really important to recognize that a lot of folks have internalized this as a need, and that's a place where we can push. Sharon, I'm going to come to you. So yeah, you know, what, what are folks struggling to receive? You know, what do we have to make a little bit more space for folks to work through some challenges when it comes to the messaging that we've been de- developing or working to articulate? I think what folks are maybe struggling to receive is that you know, this this may be a hot take. I I don't I don't know out. if we're gonna convince a majority of people in the environment that we're in now where we want to go. Like there are eighteen shows about cops saving our lives. There are like it's one show about public defenders. There are no shows about communities that have been destroyed by incarceration. There are no shows that are about people. Very very few shows about people coming home and trying to get their life together. Like. I I think that there is some last OG. <laughs> oh, that's why that's why there's one show. Yeah. Same one. Yeah, I was thinking about the one. I was thinking about the one show. Um, meanwhile, there's like Chicago Fire, Chicago Cop, Chicago Donuts. Uh, t- no, where's where's Dick Wolf at? We we gonna have to. <laughs> um, but I I think that um we may just be in a position where a small or mid sized group of highly organized folks are exerting their will, right? And that it is not a battle to get the 51%. Um, it is a battle to use whatever percentage that we have to push around whatever power that we have to do the things that we need to do, right? I think that's what we saw um, with the pretrial Fairness Act, right? We we ended cash bond, but more than in the cash bond, reformatted the system a pretrial and it'll soon to be implemented and we'll see how successful it is. But we did that because we were prepared and organized and were able to move, not because I feel like we had like millions of people on our side. Right. So this like search to try to find as many people as we can, I think is really important, but I don't think it should define like our moves. Right. Again, a small group of people can create consequences for politicians very easily. There aren't many people that vote in judicial races. Quite frankly, there aren't many people that vote in mayoral races, right? And this idea that we need to get 51% of the public there, to me, I think is like a way harder thing than we need to do. I think we could get there. I think we have the arguments to get there. But in the meantime, people in prison... And people are in jail. And people are pleading guilty to stuff they didn't do. And people are starting in prison for things they did do, but in prison too long and being tortured. So while that terribleness is happening, we have to figure out the people in this room, how can we push our power around? Lacey, I'm going to come back to you. So you mentioned, you know, some of the executive heads that, that were too lazy to do their homework and with Johnny come lately. Um, but there is a shift that's, that's happening in the popular sphere. And then there's also like a backlash that's happening as well. Uh, and kind of in that jumble, um, 
what are the messages that are being developed, that are being articulated, or the projects that are coming out? Or you can expand it beyond that. But what are the ideas, the discourse, the messaging in the creative space that you see folks challenged or struggling to receive or to activate them? I definitely think, like, if you've never interacted with police, with a court system, anything like that, and you watch all these TV shows, cops are very efficient. They solve one crime a week. We see it every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. You know, so we think they're great. And also, they're characters. I know they're a good person because I've written them to be a good person. I know this is the bad guy. And so I think there's been a lot more discussion of how we integrate some level of nuance into that, how we integrate accountability into that. You know, another study came out that, you know, in all these cop shows, there's hundreds and hundreds of incidents of cops doing things that are illegal, inhumane. I think this is an episode of Chicago PD. They stick a dude's hand in a wood chipper as they interrogate him. Like that's illegal on all thousands of levels. But less than 5% of cops in these shows ever face a consequence for that. So you never face repercussions in that. So even how do we have more nuanced discussions about that? That might be accurate though. (laughs) (laughs) That's true to the source material. Sorry. <laughs> but, but anyway, I think there's a larger discussion is how do we show these situations with the nuance there? How do we show folks of color, communities of color, people our system impact, how we show the nuances of that? I think especially also for so long, we've been told that, oh, there's been so many negative portrayals of folks of color that we can only have good ones. Like we need to be the best of the best. And it's like, no, we can be shitty, terrible people too and still not deserve what these cops do to us in these TV shows. There is a balance in that. And also, like you said, like what's the show talking about public defenders? What's the show talking about coming out? What's the show about being inside and outside? Like none of these conversations are really happening as much as they need to. But I think also sometimes what I think people forget is as much as I'm talking about here that how culture impacts policy, it actually goes the other way sometimes. Like, I don't know if any of you had the misfortune of seeing the first 48. It has been A&E's probably most popular TV show for about nearly 20 years. And they film cops. This is a actual documentary reality show where they follow cops investigating the first 48 hours after a murder. And they run up to families who've just lost someone and film their reactions and watch these investigations. People have died because of this show and the show's production. It still has massive viewership. But where it came from and the idea came from was when Reagan wanted to help with the war on drugs. So he asked ABC to come in and follow the DEA on drug bust. This was a policy point that he wanted to be heard. And we now have a 20-year legacy and culture of a show that's built off of that. So what if we did that the other way, though? Like, we're so used to, like, those type of actions. You know, where are we in demanding, well, this is the kind of content I want. This is the policies we're asking for. Where's content around that that will put that messaging out for us? That's still entertaining. One, I think that's a good plan. Two, it just, again, makes me want to, us to take the word propaganda so much more seriously, right? Like, the, this, this material, this media is not in our face on accident. This was state resource, state-funded. Um, and that also, to your point of, like, you know, that is maybe a, a counterpoint of, like, how do we create our own propaganda that not only doesn't, you know, promote the, the carceral state, but actually, to Sharon's point, shows how villainous it is. Is there a quick trivia question off the top of our head, you or anybody? What's, like, the show or movie that has, like, accurately de- de- depicted a carceral agent as, like, the villainy that it needs to? Does anybody have any example? Can we think of one? When they see us, is that the new? The Wire, I would say The Wire is a cop procedural. I would say McNulty is actually the star of The Wire, if we think about it. And like their whole thing is like, if we just had enough funds, we wouldn't have to do bad policing. Did I hear another one? 
No, y'all just laughing. All right. <laughs> Sam, we, we come back to you. Um, so we, we oh, did you say orange is the new black? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was there. It was, they, they had some moments. Uh, Sam, coming back. Um, so, you know, you're working with, with numbers. So some of the, the story or the messaging you have is, is right there, is validated. It's math for the whatever type brain that needs to, like, have it explicitly lined out. Um, but with that, even with the numbers, where are you finding folks are struggling with or challenged by or are so surprised by that it's hard to accept about the reality of police violence? So um, before I get there, th- this conversation was, was incredible. And I just want folks to think for a second of a movie that was a police movie. Where the police are the main characters and the police didn't kill anybody in the movie and weren't rewarded or celebrated for killing that person. Like, even some of your favorite movies, like, I love Rush Hour 1, 2, and 3. Even Jackie Chan, like, he, like, <laughs> like, and he's, like, the one guy who, like, tries not to kill people, and, and still, like, he does. Don't Bad Boys Andrew. 1, 2, and 3. Like, <laughs> I mean, how many people did the police kill in Bad Boys? And, like, it's literally, it's, like, a part of the script. Like, 50 people. They broke the rules to kill more people. Like, that's like how bad it is where like I can't even think of a cop movie where the police didn't kill somebody and weren't celebrated for it. Um, and like that's how deep it is. Paul Blart Monk Cop? <laughs> I'm have to rewatch that because I don't <laughs> we even have to believe, check it out. <laughs> I'm skeptical. Like I think he pro- probably did at some point. Um he leaves around somebody's foot. I think like going to the, the data piece around this, um, you know, I think that there are these scripts. And the scripts are not at all driven by data. They're feeling-based, right? The scripts, so, so it's sort of like, you know, when it comes to, when we talk about guns and, and gun safety, there is, the NRA has a script, right? The conservatives have a script. And the script goes something like, you know, we need a good guy with the gun to stop the bad guy with the gun. Now, all the data is showing that the more guns, the more people with guns, the more people get shot, period. But that script is something that has a power. Everybody's heard this argument in some form by the time you're, I don't know, age like 16, and it literally stops policies from moving forward at every level. There's no data informing that. There's no justification for that when we look at the research, and yet it has a power on its own without any of that, without needing any of that. And I think in policing, it's a very similar dynamic. And the script when it comes to police violence, is something like this. And I could show you the statistics. I could show you, you know, 1,100 people killed by police each year, about three people every single day. For every single person killed by the police, there are approximately two people who are shot by the police and survive. There are about 55,000 people injured by the police every single year. Those are the stats. Black people three times more likely to be killed than white people and more likely to be unarmed. Those are the realities. The scripts go, even if you show all of that, the script that people have been told is, Well, that may be the case, but the police have a uniquely dangerous job. Mm -hmm. And they're called to go into dangerous communities and deal with dangerous people and have to defend themselves or others from harm. That's the script, right? We've heard this in so many different ways and so many different forms over the past eight years and, and beyond. And it's just a lie. Just like the good guy with the gun script is a flat lie. 
when we look at what the police do, it is not protecting themselves and others from harm. That's not the primary job of the police, not what they spend their time doing. When we look at what police spend their time doing, about 4% of their time is spent responding to violent crime, about 5% of arrests are for violent crime, about 12% are for property crime. The vast majority of the police arrest people for, stop people for, for low-level, nonviolent offenses, things having to do with poverty, substance use, people who have mental health issues, people who are in need of help and instead are having violence used against them and being incarcerated. That's what the police are doing. When it actually comes to people who, when it comes to the most serious crime, homicide, the police don't even solve those. They don't, right? Especially in Chicago, they don't. So that's what the police do. When we look at people killed by the police, the tip of the iceberg, the most extreme interactions with the police, the majority of those interactions as well are for nonviolent, low-level offenses. The vast majority, about one in three, are for an alleged, not convicted, an alleged violent crime. One in three. So two in three, it's not even a conversation. So that's what the police are doing. Every single one of these situations, whether you're going from the most mundane encounter all the way to the most severe encounter with the police, the vast majority at every level are for low-level, nonviolent issues. And for each of those issues, there is an alternative response that's far better at dealing with those issues than the police. And we can use the data to help people understand that. Although I'm skeptical how much the data really is driving any of what people believe on this issue at this point, which I think is the big limitation. Because you could tell people that till, you know, as long as you want, but they're seeing this individual story on Fox News. They're seeing this narrative being hit home everywhere they go. Crime is going up. People are unsafe. We need the police. Like, that, it, that has power that even the data is, 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 is working upstream. Against. Even on an unconscious level. Yeah, it's, it is more powerful than logic, right? It is more powerful than reason. It is something that, is, that we have to tap into on the other side to uproot and replace. So, so I think you know, the data can be helpful um, in dismantling some of these narratives and, and challenging them. But ultimately, like their feelings, they're not really even based in fact to begin with. And like that is the real challenge here. I think the other piece of this is helping people understand the alternatives, right? Helping people really understand what it means to call for help and somebody who's not the police arrives. And what does that mean in terms of the outcome being different, right? So you have now in cities across the country programs that are starting to send mental health first responders instead of the police. And we're at the very beginning of starting to see some data come in from those programs, see are they working and how well. So you have Denver, the STAR program, for example. Um, They've been operational for about two years now. They've responded to over 2,000 mental health calls. Not once have they called the police in to arrest somebody. They haven't called the police needing backup. So they've demonstrated, and not only that, but they've, done, they've responded to those calls, they've connected people to services, they've done it at a cheaper cost per call responded to than the police. So they've saved the taxpayer money too. All of those things are happening in a city, in Denver right now, and not just Denver. Like there are programs being piloted in cities across the country to deal with mental health issues. There are also approaches to deal with traffic enforcement that are different than having an armed police officer respond. So if you've ever been... You know, if you've ever traveled, if you've been to Europe, for example, in Europe, like you will drive for like two hours. You might never see a police officer because it's all like automated, which itself presents a lot of problems we need to talk about. Because first of all, when we think about automation, 
the way in which they structure those programs can be just as bad as having the police there. They can structure it to only put the speed traps in black neighborhoods. They can set the thresholds really low so you automatically get a ticket if you drive like two miles over speed limit and end up with a worse outcome. But those are all policy choices. You could very much structure it the opposite way. But the reality is like, it just doesn't need to be an armed police officer. Like it really doesn't. There are places in which that's not the response. There are places in which if you have a mental health crisis, police are not necessarily the response. There are places in which low-level arrests, arrests for low-level offenses have declined 80, 90% over the past five or six years. Those are real places in which people live, in which people have been benefited. And we have to unpack those places, tell those stories, help people understand what that experience is like, both um, from a data perspective, which I can speak to, but also from like a lived experience perspective. I called and I, I thought I was going to call the police, but instead I called, you know, this mental health hotline and it was way better for X and Y reason. They actually connected me to help. I didn't go to jail. My son didn't go to jail who was having a crisis. Like those are the stories that we need to lift up of the alternatives actually being built and implemented today because there are more than enough examples in, in diverse examples in many different communities across the country that need to have, we need to have those narratives become the dominant narrative rather than this false narrative about it always having to be the police and people always having to be, uh, you know, have an officer in danger and, and all of that that's that been told for way too long. I'm, can I take 30 seconds real quick on that? And I promise you, I'm looking at 30 seconds. <laughs> 120, I'm going to be done. I'm going to be done. Um, so I think data is very important. Um, data is a tool for folks in power to make decisions, but the end is at the folks in power. Right, all of this makes sense, but we can't win those arguments until we have folks who are willing to carry our water and folks that feel accountable to us. Like that is all of this. Revolves. I feel like you do have somebody you want to call out. You you've been you've been hammering at this point. <laughs> Go ahead, tell it if you if you need to. No, no I I think that there are um, there are mo- I don't, I love I don't, them. So don't, don't listen. Like listen, I'm I'm out here on. I'm out here on the mayor, right? There's no, no doubt about it. Like that, like I, like I, I believe that when somebody says that everybody who's arrested is guilty, like, like to come from this city, to be of this um, background, and to say that boggles my mind. Like, like, it, like it is like it is anti-black. Um, it it's is anti-fact. It's, it's anti-fact. But with that said. It's not even about who, that leader. It's about what leaders do we have, right, to put in place what we want to put in place. And with, armed with data, we can move those leaders. But in the end, it is about power. That, that all, all today is about power. Nothing that we can do in this room that we're talking together will be done unless we have power to do it. Ashay. I think we, we got to start wrapping up. I kind of wanted to get one. Yep, that was the beep. I wanted to get one closing. But um, one thing I just want to name real quick, Sam, you, you, you shouted out and mentioned some important work elsewhere just here in Chicago. There's the Treatment Not Trauma campaign that is working to do that exact same thing of diverting resources away from violent response to mental health informed response. And also just another little fact, you mentioned the good, good gun, bad gun dichotomy. Just another little fact that I just Google one day and want to arm folks with. Um, we talk about 40% a lot, right? Like 40% of the budget goes to policing, 40% of certain federal budgets goes to defense. Um, but 40% of all revenue for producing handguns comes from police and military. 
So when we talk about these conversations about gun control, you know, we, we know the importance of 40%. If you know anything about basic finance or economics, 40% is a necessary, it's not the majority, but without that margin, the production could not happen, right? So we are publicly, socially, we have social gun production, right? We don't have social health care. There's a fight against social education, but 40% of all handguns comes from military and policing. So that right there alone would then debilitate some of the productive capacities of this conversation. So I just want to, when folks start getting into that sticky gun conversation, I just want to throw that in there. Um, thank you so much to our panelists. I just want to name also... What I hear from all of y'all is efforts to transform our society and evolve our humanity. And as somebody who's been talking about abolition now, it's been eight years, like you know, Sam has said, since the, the, the murder of Mike Brown, I just want us to be more confident in having the umbrella of revolution. So for those of us that want to get rid of these systems, for those of us that resist, that oppose, that talk about liberation, that talk about freedom, uh, I, you know, once we put these efforts together and don't talk about them in a silo. What I see, what I observe, what I feel we are participating in, even if you don't necessarily identify as a revolutionary, the, the process of creating a new reality and creating new systems is happening and being seeded. And what I want to push folks for in the messaging is, let's say that. I feel like we've been covert. I feel like we've been secretive. I feel like we've been uh, afraid or like not confident of like, can I stand? in this legacy of revolution. And I just want to say, looking in these faces, looking at the art that's here, looking at the space that's, that's been put together and looking at what you guys have to offer in this conversation. Revolution is here, revolution is happening, and it's our responsibility. So with no further ado, I want us to give a round of applause for our panel. A round of applause for the Chicago Transformation Collab. I've been your moderator and host. My name is Damon Williams. Please subscribe and follow Ergo Radio to get more of these conversations. Much love to the people. Peace out. Come on, y'all. Give it up again.